Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. And this is how Matthew begins not only his gospel, but how the New Testament opens up. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Are you still with me? This is gripping stuff, isn't it? Right on the edge of your seats, aren't you? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa. Asa the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram. Jehoram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, which all will boo at that point. Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. We're nearly there, folks, just two-thirds of the way through. We're on the home straight now. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. Abiud the father of Eliakim. Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. Didn't you enjoy that? You did really, didn't you? You loved it, didn't you? It's the sort of thing that really takes your fancy. Well, although some people have an interest in genealogies, usually their own family, the fact that we don't temp uh, uh, in general have an interest in genealogies is uh, demonstrated by the fact that that is rarely read at Christmas. Yet, Every gospel writer is deliberately collecting information and presenting it together in a way that draws the message to Jesus and the cross and all that goes with those things. So this is not some kind of preamble where Matthew's thinking, I'll give them something to while away the time while they're getting comfortable in their seats before we get on to the good message. This is a deliberate way in which he chooses to open his gospel. And you and I say, what a boring way. You couldn't pick a more boring way, Matthew. Get into the story, for heaven's sake. We don't want just a list of names. But remember, the message wasn't originally given for you and me. It's given for the contemporaries of Matthew. And if you'd lived at the days of Matthew, and if you'd been a Jew in the days of Matthew, this would have gripped you. 
and you'd have stood there if you listened or sat there as you read it and you would have been gripped by it because you know that Matthew is not just reciting a lot of difficult to answer names but telling a very important story. In verse 17 he points out himself that the three sections of 14 names is already stylized. He's manipulated the list. If you compare this list to 1 Chronicles 3, you'll find that there are names missing. Now that's not unusual. He's not playing fast and loose. What he's doing is he's choosing to make this symbolic. So he's moved a few names out in order to give him three lots of 14. If he put everyone in, it wouldn't be three lots of 14. So what is his point, we're asking? He's told us if we hadn't got the message that he's done it deliberately. Well, here's one thought. All Hebrew letters have numerical values as well. And David, written in Hebrew, is DVD in our language. We don't put the vowels in. And the value of the letters totals, DVD, totals 14. And you'll have noticed that David is a central figure on this. He's in fact mentioned five times, isn't he? Jesus Christ, the son of David. Verse 6, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. Right at the end, 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and so forth. Five times he mentions the name David. David is his focal point, if you like. But on the other hand, and I'm not going to play fast and loose with numbers, I know people love to do that sort of stuff, and I'm not telling you that you've got to be a numerologist to be able to work out the Bible, but there is significance in numbers and in the way Matthew has put this together. He's telling us there's significance. There are 14, he said, in case you didn't count them, and 14, in case you didn't get it, and 14. But we know if we were going to go back to the book's Properly, there wouldn't be 14. So what is he doing? He's passing on a numerical clue. I'm not suggesting that you have to go through your Bible looking out for mathematical formulae. But when someone's telling you that, it's important for us to notice. Three 14s is in fact six sevens. And seven in the Bible is a complete number. If it's six sevens up to Jesus, then Jesus begins the seventh seven. The completeness of all completenesses. Numbers would have, of course, impressed Matthew, who was a tax collector and worked with numbers all day long. One of my colleagues at college had come from a background in banking and he said he still couldn't go into churches without totaling up all the numbers on the hymn board. And the opening words of Matthew, the book of the genealogy, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, uses a phrase that is only used in two other places in the Old Testament as far as the Greek version of the Old Testament is concerned. And in each case it means something more than just, I'm going to give you a load of names. It means something important is happening here. It's used regarding the creation of the world and it's used regarding the creation of a particular man. In other words, they're used when something dramatic and big is going to happen. 
And by using that phrase, Matthew is saying, sit down, take stock, because I'm going to tell you something that will blow your socks off. Something really, really important is about to happen. Let me tell you about it. So the first phrase he uses, and the way he compiles his genealogy to a first century Jew, would have them thinking, what is it? What is it that God is doing? They would be, literally, on the edge of their seats. In Jesus, God is about to do something profound that has never before happened in all the world. So, in case we read the story of the Old Testament as a, and I quote someone here, failed first attempt, God's first shot at rescuing people from their sin, full of signs and pointers, no doubt, but not really as a history of salvation at all. In case we see the Old Testament as a kind of preamble to the real story, a kind of attempt by God to make it work, but it didn't. So he scraps all that and starts it all again. In case we think that, we should note that Matthew, by the way he compiles this chronological list of names, is telling us, far from it, all that's gone before is now finding its climax in what I'm about to tell you. This story of the Jews is not yet finished. It is about to come to a head to fulfilment in, well, let me tell you who it is, Jesus Christ. It will reach his God-ordained climax. So the story of Jesus is the story of the long history of the Israelites with all their warts and failures culminating in Jesus You'll remember from your knowledge of the Old Testament, and this is what Matthew is doing, he's connecting us with the story that's gone before. You cannot understand the story of Jesus if you do not understand the story of the Old Testament. You can't. If you look in your Bible and put your hand between Matthew and Malachi, you'll find that three quarters of your Bible in volume is Old Testament. Why? Because it's an important story. And it's leading to Jesus. So Matthew is saying you need to know your Old Testament story. You'll remember that the tribe of Israel was divided into two in the days after Solomon's son spoiled the whole party. And ten went north, as it were, and two stayed south. Israel was the ten northern tribes. Two in the south were called Judah. The Israelite, the the um, the. Israel, ten tribes in the north, disappeared into Assyria, captivity in the 700s before Christ. But the two tribes in the south, called Judah, from which we get the word Jews, disappeared into captivity in the 500s before Christ. And they went to Babylon. And when they were in Babylon, they were promised that they would come back. And they did come back in the days of Cyrus, who said, I'd rather not have you in my country, go back to your own country, then you can prosper there and you can give me a lot of taxes. He was an enlightened kind of thug, really. And he said, really, I want more money from you. So he sent them all back. Not only them, but all the other nations. Well, they didn't all come back. Some came back. But you'll remember from your understanding of Daniel that this Cyrus was a Persian and his empire was taken over by the Greeks who were taken over by the Romans, who ruled the world at the time of Jesus. 
So even though they come back from captivity in Persia, which had taken over from Babylonia, they were still under the oppression of the Greeks and then the Romans. So many of them thought that even though they come back, the exile was still in place. They were still slaves in their own country, oppressed by other nations. So although they had physically, or some of them had come back physically from one land back to Israel, they were not really free. They'd rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, but foreigners were still ruling over them. So the great promises in Isaiah and Ezekiel had not yet come to fulfilment. Now, in Daniel 9, you remember Daniel, he was one of the exiles in Babylon, before Cyrus sent them all back home. He was still there, a wise man, a godly man. At the end of his life, he was flicking through the scriptures and he discovered the letter that Jeremiah had sent to the exiles that said, God is saying that it will only be for 70 years you will be in exile. After 70 years, you can check me out in Jeremiah 29, you're going to come back to the land. Folks, I'm not trying to impress you with my historical knowledge. This is all important stuff from Matthew's genealogy, okay? Jeremiah said 70 years. So Daniel sees that and says to God, looky here, the prophecy says, you said to Jeremiah, 70 years. Okay, uh, when is that going to happen then? When is that 70 years up? How do you count the 70 years? Would you like to let us know when we're going back? And the answer he got from God was not what he was looking for. God said, it won't be 70 years, but 70 weeks of years. Remember that from Daniel 9? 70 weeks of years. 490 years. We're not talking about precise numbers in the sense it has to be 490 exactly like some people want. It could be, might not be, but it's nearly half a millennia. So Daniel says, when's it going to happen? And God says, think again. Now, Numbers have significance. And to a Jew, that's a very long time, but number seven has a significance. They always had seven days in a week, and on the seventh day they had a Sabbath. Very important. They were told off if they didn't keep the Sabbath. Every seven years they had a sabbatical year where you let your land lie fallow. And God gave you enough on the sixth year to see you through the seventh year the eighth year, because you didn't plant anything in the seventh year, and into the ninth year, because they had to keep the seventh year fallow, leave it all alone. But every seven times seven years, they had a kind of big jamboree, and that was called a jubilee. They were meant to keep it, but they probably didn't, because there's no record of them keeping it. And the jubilee time was a very important time, very significant moment, because... In the 49 years since the last jubilee, all sorts of things can work out. So this farmer actually doesn't get the, all the crops he wanted and he becomes poorer and poorer and poorer and perhaps sells off a bit of his land to his neighbour because he needs the money for the crops next year. And after 49 years of doing that, his bit of land is much smaller. On the 50th year, the jubilee year, all the land was returned to its original owners. Wasn't that a good idea? So then he could start again. 
If you want to know how this principle works, play Monopoly. And when you have to pay a fine, put the money in the middle. And um, on and every now and again, when you play the... So play it at Christmas. I'm telling you, play it at Christmas. And every 20 minutes or half an hour, what you do is you stop the game, you divide up everyone's property they've got, equally among everyone else, and you start the game off again. And the game will go on forever. I can guarantee it. I've done it. Well, we haven't done it forever, but it lasted days. And that was what it was meant to do. Because slaves would be released and returned to freedom. Property would be returned. It was a day of liberation, a day of freedom, where people... So if you were a slave, life didn't become more and more miserable endlessly, but you knew there was hope in the future that it would all turn around and go well. Now... If that's what seven times seven would look like, what was 70 times seven going to look like? It sounds a bit like a jubilee of jubilees, doesn't it? So although it was nearly half a millennium in the future, somehow when it came, it would be the greatest liberation of all. Wouldn't it? Something they could hardly cope with, comprehend. A time of real, utter and lasting freedom. That was the hope that sustained the Israelites in the long centuries before Jesus. That one day God had promised something that they couldn't quite put their finger on, but whatever it was, it was big and it was good and it was worth waiting for. What else would keep you going when you're under the foot of one nation after another? And obviously, as we would have done in our day, the Jews try to work out when that day would be. So when Matthew starts the first gospel in the order in the New Testament and constructs it using sevens, he's passing on a message to a nation that had been waiting for this jubilee of jubilees to come along. Now, he's not using 70 times 7. He's using, it looks like, 7 times 7. And instead of years, he's using generations. And they will know by the way they will understand where he's missed out names, that he's doing something with it significant. And he's triggering something off in the minds of those who have a mind to think about it. So by missing out some people, he lists 14 generations. And in Jesus, we get to the seventh seven. Jesus is the Jubilee. In person. He's a jubilee of jubilees everyone's been waiting for. We're not talking about land being restored to original owners. We're not talking about people physically in slavery being kept set free. We're talking about God bringing a massive redemption, not just for one nation, but for all the nations of the world. So to a first century Jew, the phrase that comes in Matthew 1.21, which says this, she will give birth, says the Holy Spirit, or the, the angel to Joseph. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Is not to a first century Jew an idea, oh, I can be saved. No. Your sins caused punishment. That was what the exiles was all about. 
But forgiveness is the return from punishment. It's the liberation. So you are communicating to a first century Jew the idea of the exile is over. The liberation has come. The jubilee is here. He will save his people from their sins. It's not a case of come up to the front and I can, I'm not disparaging what Billy Graham did, but not that idea at all. It is that God is doing a great thing, bringing about a redemption. Of course it includes individual salvation. Absolutely. God saves the world one person at a time. And in people like Billy Graham, bless his heart, godly man, God has saved thousands and possibly millions of people through that man's godly, righteous, careful ministry. But that's not what's being communicated. It's communicating the exile is over, the liberation has come. So, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Comes from Isaiah chapter 40. You'll know that Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books. The Bible is divided into two halves, 39 chapters in the Old, 27 in the New, which means that in chapters terms, Matthew is the 40th chapter. In the 40th chapter of Isaiah, as it were, paralleling Matthew 1, you find this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The exile is over, you're on your way home. And he said that hundreds of years before it actually happened. And he's saying the day will come when you'll come back. And I know that must be in Matthew's mind because he has the very first thing John the Baptist saying as the next verse of, Matthew, of, of Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. It's a deliberate connection here. Do you get the point? So this isn't just a list of names. Matthew's saying, pay attention, sit down. God is doing something that is going to explode right across the world. So Jesus is the rightful heir to all God's promises in Abraham, because he traces the line back to Abraham, and to David's throne. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you I'm going to bless the nations of the world. Well, Matthew's telling us that that blessing is going to come through Jesus. So much so that Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, will say this, Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham saying, all nations will be blessed through you. And he quotes Genesis 12, verse 3. Paul gets this connection. Jesus is the one who inherits all the promises that God made to Abraham, and more so. Jesus is the one who inherits all the promises God made to David. And this construction of three fourteens centers on David. We have the, the origin and rise to power of David's house. So the first 14 finishes with David mentioned. And notice that although this list mentions loads of kings, the only one called a king is King David. Matthew's saying, spot that. The second 14 
speaks about the decay and downfall of the captivity, of the kingdom, and goes to the captivity where the kingdom was wiped out. There were never any more kings after that. And the third 14 then leads from the captivity, the lowest point in the history of the Jews, leads right up to Jesus, who is the King of Kings. What will the story be in chapter 2? What will the focus be? We've come to see the one who has been born the King of the Jews, say the royal personages from the East. And who do they go to see first of all? But the king, Herod. And it's all about authority. Who is the rightful king and who is the wrongful king? And the end of chapter 2 finishes with the powerful king at the beginning dead in his grave and the little baby under great threat at the beginning, alive and well and living in Nazareth. Thank you very much. But he also does something else. Jesus is the saviour of all humanity. I expect you noticed I mentioned the names of four women because Matthew mentioned them. Now, mentioning women in genealogies is not unheard of, but it is unusual. And if he were to leave all those names out, it would not have changed the genealogy one little bit. So why did he put them in? Why add four women's names, all of whom are actually Gentiles? None of them are Jews. Now, if you're going to put women in, why not put Sarah in, Abraham's wife? Why not put Rebecca in, Isaac's wife? Why not put Rachel in, Jacob's wife? They're not mentioned. The ones that are mentioned are Tamar. Someone tell me who Tamar was. Her, she had a child from Judah. Do you remember the story? Tell me, who was Tamar? Who was Tamar? Judah's daughter-in-law. Got it? And she has a son through her father-in-law. That's not allowed, folks, is it? Isn't it interesting? If you were writing your genealogy, would you have included that sort of fact? Okay. Another one mentioned is Rahab. Who was Rahab? A prostitute. A Gentile prostitute. She's mentioned. Then there's Ruth, who's a lovely woman, but she's a Moabitess. Do you know how the Moabites came into existence? When Lot fled Sodom, he fled with his two daughters, but his wife was hankering back and she turned into a pillar of salt, didn't she? So Lot and his two daughters were in a cave and the two daughters said to, their, uh, to each other, there aren't any men around here and if we don't have any children... The family's going to die out, so we'll have sex with our father. So they made him drunk. And they had sex with their father. The Moabites arise out of incest. This is unsavory, isn't it? Why ever would you put these people in the genealogy? Uriah's wife is not even mentioned by name. Matthew says, I'm not even going to tell you her name. He knows her name. It's Bathsheba. It's unthinkable that he doesn't know her name. He knows her name, all right. He just can't bear to mention it. Because she manipulates King David. In the days of King David, at this time, Jerusalem occupied an area of about 16 acres. Don't think of it as a multinational megalopolis. 16 acres. John could probably tell us how big that is. It's not very big. 
It's not very big. It's a very tiny place. Therefore, when she goes to have a bath, or bathes, in full view of the palace, he's not miles away with a telescope, he's right over top of her. And she knows exactly what she's doing because Middle Eastern people then and now are very shy at showing their bodies. She knows exactly what she's doing. So Matthew won't even do it. But why does he include these people? Well, the point is, he's saying in this story, I don't know what exactly he's saying, but you can gather from what he's saying here that says, this saviour has not come for the Jews only. And he deliberately puts four Gentile names in there. He says he's come for Gentiles too. This gospel will finish with Jesus on the mountain saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That is to say the Gentiles. This is a Gentile gospel. The Saviour has come for Gentiles as well as Jews. And you and I can say, praise the Lord for that. We don't have to be Jews to be Christians. And by putting these four Gentile women in, he's telling us something along those lines. He's also saying that the, the um, Saviour hasn't come for men alone. You'll know that Jewish men, every morning, thank God they hadn't been born a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. Or a slave. They didn't teach their daughters anything. Rather throw the pearls before swine than teach your daughter the scriptures. They didn't. Women were very lowly esteemed in Jewry. How on earth they got that from the scriptures, I have no idea. But by putting women in this story, Matthew is saying this saviour has come not just for men and not just for Jewish men, but for Gentiles and for women. This Gospel is for everyone. And they're all, well, nearly all, risk-takers. So Tamar does something very risky. She is in danger of her life, and she's being dragged out to be burned to death when she gets a message to Judah saying, by the way, uh, let me just tell you, you're the one who's responsible she doesn't say it like that, but that's essentially what it is. And he uh, oops, he says, oops. And he didn't have sex with her again, as if that was a big deal. But she dangerously does something. Rahab is a harlot, but she calls for God for mercy. Ruth is a forbidden Moabitess, and she risks everything by taking an initiative with Boaz, who is a godly man. And Uriah's wife has an adulterous affair. These are sinners, my friends. And the gospel is for sinners. It's not for saints. Jesus says, I haven't come for those who don't need a doctor. I've come for those who are sick and needing a doctor. So not just for the good. But I guess what you can get from these women is this. They all were in dire need and they called out for someone they thought could help them. Tamar knew that if she didn't have a son, her line would die out. Her husband's line would die out. And Judah had prevented that from happening. So she risked everything. And as it were, threw herself at the mercy of Judah in order for the help she needed. Rahab was in Jericho when the spies came over. And she knew what God was doing. And she said, everyone knows it. So I'm just going to ask you, please have mercy on us. She called out for help. 
Ruth was a penniless, hopeless widow living in a foreign land who had come under the shadow of God's wing for protection. And she puts herself at the mercy of Boaz, who, honourable and upright guy that he was, did absolutely the right thing in absolutely the right way. And Uriah's wife Bathsheba, maybe she didn't have any children. Maybe she wanted to be part of this nation, not just a wife of a Hittite soldier, and risks everything to have an adulterous affair with David. But they all called out for help. And maybe Matthew's saying, this Saviour's come for everyone, whoever they are, if they call out for help. Billy Graham said again and again, all you have to do is trust and believe. Throw yourself on God's mercy. It sounds too easy to be true, but it is. So what Matthew is doing, what he's saying in this genealogy, He's saying, this is it. This is it. This is the story that we've been waiting for, even though we never knew how it would turn out ultimately. This is what we've been waiting for. This is where the single story of Abraham's family, David's offspring, the restoration from exile, has been going all along with its ups and its very great downs. This is where the story is going. This is where it's come to. We didn't think it would look like this. But now it's happened, we can see that this is where it was supposed to be heading all along. So the Gospel writers, Matthew and the others, saw the events concerning Jesus as bringing the long story of Israel to its proper goal, even though that long story had apparently got lost, stuck, and all but forgotten. This story is what Israel had been waiting for. And if it did but know it, this story is what the world had been waiting for. And my friends, the Christmas story is still the story that the world is waiting for. Let me pray. Aren't we glad, Father, that the story of salvation is your story, we would never have been able to work out a story that would have worked through the centuries, but you have. And every revelation that your Holy Spirit gives to us just makes it all the more precious and full and wonderful. We know that today, this message is still the message the world is waiting for. So, we pray, Father, that in this church, over this season of Christmas, in the services of other churches that we know, that the message of Christ, the Messiah, the Saviour of the world, will be proclaimed in such a way that anyone who gets close enough to hear it will understand that this is what they've always been longing for. This is the pain they've been feeling that can be relieved totally. This gives the reason for their life on earth. And this gives the hope for the future. So we pray for churches and preachers and leaders and Christians in whatever context, in whatever creative ways, 
This message is going to be proclaimed with mince pies and mulled wine and everything else. We pray, Father, that coming through it all will be this wonderful message of hope. Jesus Christ, the Saviour of the world. And may it be to your glory and praise. Amen.